This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. As we continue on into our final 30 of the day, the digital age has given rise to companies that hold a dominant position in our world. They have the profit and they have the power. Firms like Google, Amazon, Apple, and others are almost impossible to displace right now. Big data and information-based thinking is providing this advantage. Wharton professor Eric Clemens looks for a bit of a different path, one using pattern-based thinking, which he believes can provide those outside of today's power companies a way to find success in this digital age. His new book about the topic is titled New Patterns of Power and Profit, A Strategist's Guide to Competitive Advantage in the Age of Digital Transformation. Eric is a professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Great seeing you again. Thanks for coming in. Great to be back. Thank you. I guess let's start with the with the background on on why you decided to write a book about this. Well, it's actually a, a memoir. It's, a, it's the history of a great adventure. So about uh, mid-1980s, I realized that economics really understood big industry. And Michael Porter had said just about everything that needed to be said about strategy for traditional industry. But traditional industry wasn't where, where things were happening. Right. Economics had started to look at the power, the value of information. Economics had started to look at limited or bounded rationality, the fact that we aren't really perfect uh, economic machines. And there was just this whole new opportunity to document how information changed strategy in, in new industries. And given the bully pulpit of being at Wharton, I was able to talk my way into places where <laughs> I really shouldn't have been. Right. <laughs> and I got to do strategy for clients with problems that I would never have thought of myself. So in about 1990, I had a client ask me about the power of online search. Now, Larry and Sergey were probably still wearing short pants at the time. <laughs> but I did my first paper with Paul Kleindorfer, a regulatory economist, on the power of search in 1991. I had a client ask me about whether e-commerce was going to affect the power of traditional retailers, whether it would affect the power of traditional manufacturers, and who would end up owning the channel. It was a great question. So yeah. I worked for the president of Lever in the U.S. for years and finally concluded that the power was not going to be with the manufacturers and it was not going to be with traditional brick and mortar. It was going to be with, with giant uh, – I didn't name the scenario uh, Jeff Bezos's wonderful adventure. I actually called it Bill Gates's wonderful yeah. adventure. Yeah. But it was clear where the power was going. I had a, a client who was at that point a four-star and actually the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he wanted to know if social nets were going to lead to the fall of uh, the government in Tehran. And working with a team of people much smarter than I am in anthropology, uh, we documented the fact that it was much more likely to lead to the fall of Mubarak than it was to lead to the fall of the, the mullahs in, in Iran. This is just such a great adventure. And I wrote the book, Great Men Write Memoirs. Right. I'm not a great man, 
But, but oh, great, yes, you are. Oh, Absolutely, no, you are. Right? I would say great adventures okay. also deserve a okay. memoir. So I, that's what I think of this as. I think of this as um, a great adventure riding the emergence of the new economy, linking it to the new economics, and writing a guide, a strategy guide for all of us. So realistically, you have been using pattern-based thinking for a lot of your professional career. It's a, it's a shorthand. It's a, it's an old physicist's trick. If you've seen a problem you've never seen before and you're focusing on the color of the vehicle, uh, you really can't figure out how to solve the problem. Right. But if you immediately focus on what's essential – so when I was asked to assess Uber for the first time, it looked to me like they had found a way to harness the customer profitability gradient. Right. They had found a way to harness customers who were willing to pay for convenience, uh, didn't want to hail a cruising taxi, but actually therefore were cheaper to serve because you could dispatch a vehicle directly towards them. That's the business model of Capital One, which is yeah. why Nigel Morris actually wrote the, the, the quote on the back cover of, of the book. He said, we're not a bank. We're an information-based strategy company, and we surf the customer profitability gradient. If the chairman of Uber had said something equivalent, he did say we're not a transportation company. He didn't say we surf the customer profitability gradient. But it's exactly the same business model. So what I've been trying to do with my students is teach them how to see what's, what's essential. When, when Uber has just been introduced, there's no history. You can't right. use big data. Right. But you can find something that looks just like it. When uh, Google was introduced, there's no history. But you can find something just like it which turned out to be the airline reservation systems of the 80s. Yeah. Well, you mentioned as well the fact, I guess, that also in the students that you teach is the fact that some of them, it was harder for them to, to get a, a true understanding of this because of the fact that they hadn't lived, all they had lived through is the information age, is the Internet age. They didn't know what was pre-Internet, unlike us, who, you know, we've obviously lived through that. Well, I consider myself a digital native. My wife said she was probably the first online computer widow. In, ni <laughs> in, in 1970, Harvard put a terminal in my bedroom so that I could work 24-7. Wow. Uh, so I've been online since long before there was online. And what I find interesting uh, is that there is a, a generation – of people who have no idea what life was like before the net, yeah, but they also have no idea what's under the surface of the net. Right. So they don't understand national vulnerabilities. They don't understand opportunities. I had a former student say to me today, if you took out half of the Amazon Web Service data centers on the planet, the world would stop. And that's Probably true. Skynet doesn't need to blast us. All Skynet needs to do is take down the cloud for a couple of days, and uh, we're we're starving. So, so you're right. Teaching pattern recognition is is surprisingly difficult. 
Years ago, I had, again, clients at Microsoft who were looking for a model uh, for Google's power. And I pointed out to them that the best analog was uh, Sabre and Apollo, the reservation systems that at American and United and their lock on search for yeah. air, airfare. And they said, well, we really should have thought of that. And I said, well, no, it's a specialized skill. You wouldn't have thought of it if you weren't antitrust lawyers. Yeah. And they said, we were antitrust lawyers. And then I said, well, you know, lots of flavors of antitrust lawyers. You wouldn't have thought of it if you weren't an antitrust lawyer at sure. American or United. Sure. And they said, we were antitrust <laughs> lawyers at airlines at the time of this litigation. Yeah. And I realized that if you change the color of the vehicle you're looking at, yeah. some people can't find the pattern. So I, I find teaching patterns the most challenging and the most powerful part of what I do now. Well, let me ask you this then. Have we kind of historically kind of gotten away from this pattern-based thinking? Because obviously it's something that, that you have done, as you said, for you know more than 40 years, and it was probably more the norm pre-internet age. So you know, have we seen kind of a shift in mindset of, of how we think because the data is so available and it's so easy to, to have at our fingertips? Absolutely. In, in fact, of... I would say half a century ago, I was the minority admit at the Harvard Business School. They're going to hate this sentence. I was the straight white guy with a beard. Okay. Right. Uh, so uh, we've made an enormous amount of progress, but we've slipped in some areas. So business school teaching in, in 1970 was entirely patterns Yeah. because we didn't have any theory right. and we didn't have any data. And I was initially not very good at it. So the disparaging thing the faculty said about me was, he's a really good quant, but he'd never pass his APVs, <laughs> administrative point <laughs> yeah, of view exam, yeah. the ability to resolve a problem you've, you've never seen before. I think it's gone from being the center of the business school curriculum to something that's almost lost. Hmm. And I think the balance is, is crucial. So when you talk about patterns, you bring up uh, three real important concepts. You talk about reframe, recognize, and respond. And seemingly the, the first you reframe and recognize obviously kind of lead to what that, what that C. It's an A plus B equals C to a degree, correct? Absolutely. And, and to be clear, I, I am a quant. All of my degrees are quant. All of my degrees are from engineering institutions. And I am not dissing quantitative thinking. Yeah. But quantitative thinking can can paralyze you. I remember doing some work with Merrill uh, decades ago in which they were trying to figure out whether to let uh, Mike Bloomberg sell his system to big bank competitors. Yeah. And they were trying to come up with a quantitative number on what life would be worth with Merrill uh, selling and what life at Merrill would be worth without Bloomberg selling turns out to be the wrong question. The correct question is really very simple. If we don't let Mike sell, will somebody duplicate it? Sure. Yeah. And the answer is, of course. Yeah. And if somebody duplicates it, will they get the revenue we would otherwise have gotten? Right. And the answer is, of course. So the respond is easy. But seeing the pattern, if the world is changing, at least getting revenue from the change is better than the world changing and not getting 
revenue from the change. That pattern even has a name. It's called the trap of the vanishing status quo. You're trying to figure out if life is better uh, if you let Mike sell or life is better now. Right. It's the wrong question. Is life better if you let Mike sell or is life better if you let somebody else sell Mike's stuff yeah. and you get no revenue from it? And suddenly it becomes really simple. It, it is interesting that it, it, it can be broken down and as simple as the fact that if you can understand the pattern and, and to a degree the historical pattern, that understanding the problem in the, in, in, the, uh, in the current frame becomes a little bit easier to try and dissect. It becomes a lot easier. And I couldn't originally find a publisher for the book because the first four or five publishers who looked at it said executives have no patience for history. Right. And I had to reframe the book. I had to make history relevant. History is not a collection of stories. History is how you recognize a pattern. Right. So physicists have their pattern. They have names like conservation of energy. And engineers have patterns. Athletes have, have patterns. Uh, one of my students has two Super Bowl rings for strip-sacking Brady. Yes, he does. Twice. I know that student, by the way. Uh, yes. As do we all. He had a friend who played for the Eagles. And he, he uh, Justin said it was certainly worth his while to practice that move just in case uh, the defensive end ever had to deal with Brady in a Super Bowl. And there it showed yep. up. Yes, it did. In the, in the second half. So what's the point of the story? Everybody has patterns. Uh, business has patterns, but they're so new because the patterns like surfing the customer profitability gradient, uh, Uber and Capital One, that's a new pattern. Yeah. Controlling search, uh, Google and uh, Sabre and Apollo, that's a new pattern. Controlling the on online gateway, uh, Amazon, to, a extent, to an extent that even Walmart never did. That's a new pattern. So I need some history to teach the patterns. And then everything you ever learned about quantitative strategy kicks in. I'm not dissing strategy. Right. But I'm telling you how to do diagnosis first. So then how do you think that then the understanding of patterns can impact power and control in this day and age, especially when you have the, the information-based thinking that is so prevalent out there? Okay. There is so much information that if you try to analyze all of it, you get nowhere. So uh, on, on occasions, when, for example, I, I, I predicted for a, a client the uh, attack uh, out of uh, southern Lebanon uh, using missiles, that Iran would back that because it created such worship of Iranian intransigence mm -hmm. on the Arab street that it was almost impossible for any Arab government to oppose a, 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 a Shia bomb, an Iranian bomb. Now, my, my three-star and four-star clients said, how the hell did you see that coming? Right. And the answer is, that's what I would have done. Not, that's what the data said. That's, that's what I would have done. Yeah. So if you can understand the context in which you operate, you understand what your competitors should want to do. You understand what you should want to do. 
the guy who understands first moves first. And the guy who moves first often, often wins. Right. You remember a company called Digital Equipment? Yeah, yeah. I do too. Yeah. I was a big fan of digital. I bought uh, Digital Rainbows. I was the department's procurement officer. Yeah. Uh, I bought Digital Rainbows and they came with an operating system that was not standard and they came with a manual for a different operating system. Mm-hmm. That was not standard. I sent them back and bought a whole lot of uh, – of, they weren't Windows at the time. They were DOS machines. Right. I should have shorted uh, digital stock at the, at the same time. But Windows isn't a bad operating system. DOS was a terrible operating yeah. system. Yep. Why did it win? It won because there was nothing else in the marketplace. So the guy who sees – an opportunity first, especially in an environment where numbers are power, which yeah. is always true in software. And, and part of the book you spend talking about the third-party payer system, which I think plays into this a little bit, exactly what you're talking about. Third-party payer system scares the hell out of me. Uh, it It's actually – it starts off safe for everybody. Uh, so uh, Google was the fastest way to find anything. And we've all become Google addicts, myself involved and included. And then corporations absolutely have to be found. Now, if if I paid for Google, if we all paid to use Google, the price we paid would be limited by the reduction in search time, how, how much effort it saves me. But if none of us can find what we're looking for without Google, then the amount you can charge is not limited by the value to the searcher. Yeah. It's limited to the value to the company that needs to be found. So I, I call that paying not to be found, but to not be not found. <laughs> I, I was working with a hotel chain, which was terrified and wouldn't let me use their name. Uh, but we found that every dollar we saved by not paying for our name – Cost us forty dollars in lost revenue. Wow! So we we significant loss. We we paid whatever we were told the the cost of our name would be. Yeah, and that's pretty scary. So the third party payer, if you have no alternative, that's where mandatory participation comes in. Then the value is is limited only by the value of the sale to the seller. It has nothing to do with the value to the searcher. Uh, we learned from Saber and Apollo. If you were listed in Sabre but not Apollo, you went bankrupt. If you were listed in Apollo but not Sabre, you went bankrupt. If you're easy to find in Bing but not Google, you die. So Google's ability to charge is not limited by what the first payer, me, first party, thinks it's worth, which is the value of convenience. It's limited solely by the value of the sale, the value of not being not found, which is enormous. So when we wrote about this in 1991, didn't seem like a big deal uh, other than theoretically interesting. But it's, it's now – it's the uh, airline model on steroids. And it, it's so big and it's so powerful and the revenue is so all-inclusive. Yeah that it may be the best emerging business model on the planet. And you talk a little bit towards the end of the book uh, about discussing the impact of, of these types of decisions on, on our society as well. 
Yeah, I'm a professional worrier. And, and uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I mean, forgive me for saying this, but in 1967, I thought black paint and red paint was only sold as a kit with large <laughs> brushes called bank uh, defacing, bank bank. We didn't destroy anything. Yeah, we just right. kind of messed up the windows. Yeah, I have become such an avid supporter of Western democracy and and all of the property rights and business rights that that entails. Not because it's perfect, but because it's better than anything else I've seen. So I am frightened when I see business models that are potentially quite disruptive. I don't just mean wealth inequality. Right. Though at some point, that becomes intolerable. I mean the marketization of of everything. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I've had Uber drivers who told me with joy that they were buying buildings in neighborhoods that had been predominantly uh, working class ethnic minority and gentrifying them and forcing out the people who sure. had previously lived there. Yeah. And that's it's not Airbnb's responsibility to set social policy, but somebody has to set social policy in the sharing economy. I mean, if I list the things I'm worried about, and this is going to be a little over the top, technology changes governments. I don't mean it changes regimes. It changes the entire nature of government. Yeah. So states were small and fragmented and malleable uh, before the Thirty Years' War. And the Thirty Years' War and the power of modern armies was so dramatic that the idea of a state was codified. Right. And between the uh, Peace of Westphalia, 1648, and the Congress of Vienna right after the Napoleonic Wars, we ended up with a form of national governance, post-Westphalian world order, that was defined by the supreme power of an army. Right. What about the supreme power of Facebook to destabilize yeah. a government? Oh, yeah. What about the supreme power of Google to destabilize a government? So we now have a situation in which it's not appropriate to expect Google to limit the returns to its shareholders uh, as long as they're doing things that are legal but it's certainly appropriate for governments to protect citizens and the and the nation sure. state. Yeah. Uh, one of the I was lucky enough to have as a drinking buddy for a while, one of the homeland security secretaries. Yeah, and he said one of the most complicated problems facing the planet today is balancing the state's right to protect itself. Yeah, the state's obligation to protect us and Citizens' Right to Privacy. Eric, great having you here. It's a fantastic book. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me, and thanks for plugging the book. Thank you. New Patterns of Power and Profit. Eric Clemens is the author of the book, which is uh, online and in bookstores for your purchase now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.